can the book of Revelation really be understood amidst all the prophetic language and mysterious symbols? How is it relevant to the 21st century? What is the controversy between good and evil all about? How and when will it end? These and many other questions will be answered, providing amazing clarity to the conditions we see in our world today. This seminar will bring you face to face with Jesus in a new and wonderful way, leading you to the most momentous decisions of your life. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Revelation. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Revelation Prophecy Seminar, session number 24, which happens to be the final session in this Revelation Seminar series. What are we actually going to learn in session 24, which is righteousness by faith? And we're going to look at our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, let's find out how we're saved. Are we saved by faith or by our works? Number two, what actually is justification? What does that word mean in a theological and biblical sense? Number three, what is sanctification and how does it play out in Scripture and in our own lives? Number four, most people would not really be able to tell you, even if they're Christians, what glorification is. We're going to explore a little bit more about the three parts of sin and the power that it has over us. Why don't we pray before we begin our session? Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Holy Spirit, we come before you with praise and thanksgiving, thanking you for blessing us for the past 23 sessions. And again, in this session, we ask for the gift of wisdom and understanding. And I thank you for your word, how beautiful and powerful it is. And may we learn a lot more about how to develop a stronger relationship with Jesus And I ask it in his precious name. Amen. So, friends, here we are at the end of the series, Righteousness by Faith, session number 24. It only seemed like yesterday when we began this Revelation Prophecy Seminar, and suddenly it's all over. And here we are now studying our final lesson together. You know, we've received wonderful new views of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I believe we've seen Jesus in four ways. We've seen him as our creator. We've seen him more as our saviour, as we will in session 24 in this session. We've also spent a lot of time investigating Jesus' role as our high priest and intercessor in the heavenly sanctuary, the work he's doing now. And finally, we're really looking forward to Jesus coming back and being our deliverer from Satan, sin and suffering that is found in this world. It's also thrilling to be reminded that God the Father, the Ancient of Days, also loves us more than words can express. So friends, in Revelation, Jesus, our loving Saviour, has in special kindness and mercy given us the help and information we must have for these last days. Our only hope is to obey his counsel and accept his offer of assistance. Jesus stated it clearly, didn't he? In Revelation 22, 7, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed 
is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. You know, the New International Version translates Revelation 1-3 thus, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. What is written in it? Because the time is near. The King James says, I believe, for the time is at hand. That's this time now. You know, in Revelation, Jesus is lovingly calling his sheep to follow him. He provides the map and promises to lead us safely through the harrowing, confusing crises of these last days. But it is imperative to choose to follow him, for he will not force the issue. He simply invites us to follow and says, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely in Revelation 22:17, And Jesus there is speaking about salvation. The water of life is salvation. So friends, in this closing seminar, we'll finally study righteousness by faith. Righteousness comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other source of righteousness and there's no other subject in the Bible so exciting. It is the prize at the end of the race. It's the dessert of the meal and it's the icing on the cake. So here we are in session number 24. Why don't we take a moment to just review where we've been in our seminar sessions very briefly, just as when we began in session one, we previewed the uh, 22 chapters of the book of Revelation and we looked ahead. Now we're able to look back and see where we've been. So you might remember and you might have joined us or been with us for session number one, Revelation, the open book. Remember that John the Revelator was um, in exile on the island of Patmos, just off the uh, coast of Turkey in the Greek Peloponnese Islands, and he was there for the witness of Jesus Christ. And so he began his fascinating exploration of this book, and we shared that with you. In session number two, we got straight into Jesus, the star of the drama of Revelation, and it was a wonderful revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at the amazing time prophecy of the 70 weeks. And in that, we saw that Jesus came on time in AD 27. He was anointed at his baptism uh, and became the Messiah then. He died in the midst of the week in AD 31. And then in AD 34, the gospel went to the Gentiles. In session number three, we looked at the villain of the drama of the book of Revelation, which was a surprise, I'm sure, for some, because this beautiful angel in heaven was known as Lucifer, son of the morning. But as Lucifer rebelled and he turned against the kingdom of God, became jealous of the Lord Jesus Christ, he showed his true colors and became the devil and Satan and was cast out. We then return down to earth for session number four. The incredibly good news of Revelation was that Jesus Christ had died for all of us. We then looked at the uh, messages of the three angels, which were messages for God's last day people to prepare them to go home to heaven. 
Session five was a fascinating time. We looked at the first of the four sevens in the book of Revelation. We looked at the seven churches. We examined the religious history of the Christian church and those seven churches there, which today are in Turkey, but we're in Asia Minor. You might remember the seven churches were local churches as well as a representation of the universalized Christian church from Jesus' death until his second coming. So I want you to remember that the seven churches' messages were also to become a prophecy. Well, session number six was very, very popular. I could see by all the downloads. And um, we were looking there at the way in which Jesus would come back, his glorious return. It's mentioned 2,000 500 times in scripture and we also went through the fact that Jesus warned us of false Christ and false prophets and that there would be a counterfeit coming that's a fascinating lesson session seven we looked at Satan being chained up on the earth for the 1000 years and we were rejoicing in the fact that at the end of that time in the lake of fire Satan and sinners are destroyed Session eight was a really positive study. After those heavy-duty lessons, we looked at Revelation's amazing space city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down uh, on top of the Mount of Olives, and, of course, Jesus preparing that place for his people. The four horsemen of Revelation or the apocalypse were actually the beginning of what is known as the seven seals, which cover the social history of the church. Session number 10, we looked at what was Revelation's seal of God. Everyone goes on about the mark of the beast, but what does God offer in opposition to that mark of the beast? We found out that God has a seal or mark of authority. It's found in his seventh day Sabbath. It's found in the fourth commandment, Revelation 20, verses 8 to 11. And in that fourth commandment, you will find God has a seal that contains his name, the Lord God, his title, which is creator or maker, and finally his territory, that he is the ruler of heaven and earth. And we should make sure that we are getting the seal of God and avoiding the mark of the beast. Well, session number 11 looked at the opposition to the Sabbath that God set up, which comes through Sunday observance and the book of Revelation. We looked at Jesus dying on the preparation day, which was the sixth day, him being resurrected on the first day, which was Resurrection Sunday. Although half the world keeps that day, it's interesting to note that Scripture in nowhere actually recommends or mandates the keeping of the first day of the week, the day of the sun, Sunday. It's not necessary. But the day between the Preparation Day, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday is God's day. It's the seventh day Sabbath, and that is the day that Jesus totally consistent with being the creator, rested on the Sabbath as he recreated man in this wonderful salvation event and then was raised on the third day, as he said. Well, when we got to Revelation chapter 11, which was session 12, many people were quite amazed by this. We looked at perhaps two or three worldwide movements, atheism versus evolution in the French Revolution. We also looked at the three angels' messages of worshipping the Creator, coming out of Babylon and making sure we had the seal of God. Session 13, we looked at the state of the dead. And it was quite interesting because we found that death was nothing to fear. It was just asleep until the second coming.
And in the 1600 plus times the word soul is used in the Bible, never once is the adjective immortal ever attached to it. In sessions 14 and 15, we had a close look at the judgment which is going on in heaven now that God sets a date for the judgment. We looked at the amazing 2,300-day prophecy that was shared in Daniel 8 and 9 and found out that the judgment began in AD 1844. And so we're actually living in the day of judgment. We looked at a little bit more in Revelation Proclaims God's Judgment. We saw that up to the first resurrection in the last days, there's the pre-advent or investigative judgment during the 1,000 years where the righteous spend time in heaven. That is the second phase of the judgment that takes place up there. It's a review phase, a review of God's judgment to see that everything has been done correctly. And finally, at the end of that time, we looked at the phase three, the judgment at the end of the 1,000 years, which is the executive judgment that destroys sin, sinners, Satan, and his evil angels. We also talked to you about the good news and bad news about the judgment, that amazing story about Tom and his lawyer who promised to get him off. Well, session 16, we looked at the land beginning again and who hasn't ever looked back on their life and wanted to begin again. And what a wonderful lesson that was. We looked at the beautiful blessing of baptism by immersion to be completely able to go under the water and come up and start a new life in Jesus Christ. Session 17 was modern prophets and visions. We looked at the marks of a true prophet because Jesus had warned in Matthew 24 that we must avoid false Christs and false prophets. Session 18 looked at God's true church that had to flee into the wilderness. There was a sharp contrast in that lesson between a pure woman who represented a pure church and a false woman who represented a false church. From there, we went into the mark of the beast. It always amuses me that so many people have an opinion of what the mark of the beast is, but when you ask them, what is the beast or who is the beast? Hmm, not too sure about that. So friends, if you don't know who the beast is, how can you say who has the mark of the beast? So we looked there at Rome's claim that she had the authority to change God's Fourth commandment over to the first day of the week from the seventh day Sabbath on Saturday. And uh, they said it was their mark of authority. And we also saw God's name, Abba Father, in the heart of the word Sabbath. Session number 20 was quite confronting. We looked at hellfire. We went to hell for that session. We looked at Satan and his evil angels and were reassured that he will actually perish in that lake of fire, but it was um, offset by the fact that Jesus would be crying over the loss of all of his children. He loved everyone and said, turn ye, turn ye from your wicked ways, for why will you die, my people, in Exodus, in Ezekiel 33, 11. Session number 21 was Mystic Babylon, the great harlot. We looked at Babylon and Jesus' call for people to come out of Babylon. Even those who are sitting in Christian churches today might not know how far their churches have strayed from the word of God and the Holy Scriptures. And so Jesus calls us out of all false religion, religions that no longer follow the Scriptures and the Holy Words of God. Remember the word Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. 
Session 22, one of my favorites. I love going through the seven last plagues. I think it's great to know ahead of time what's going to happen. The good news for us was is the seven last plagues are applied to the wicked, those persecuting and killing God's people. They are not poured out upon the church of God. Well, in our last session, we looked at the seven trumpets, the last of the four sevens, and we looked there at the invasions of the pagan Roman Empire by all those barbarian tribes, and we found out that the seven trumpets actually broke the power of, firstly, the pagan Roman Empire, both the eastern and western wings, but it also broke the Roman church's hold over Europe. Well, that brings us to where we are in session number 24. We're looking at righteousness by faith and the amazing sacrifice that Jesus made for us that we might be with him in heaven for eternity. And I'm so glad that you've joined us. May God bless you and enlighten your mind as we go straight into his word. Please join me in section number one. And uh, the study guide is downloadable from under the description bar if you're watching this online. And we're going to heading one and question number one. So we need to find out how is righteousness obtained. We're going to Romans chapter three, verse 22, and we're going to look at the words of Paul, the apostle. Paul wrote, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference. So friends, is there any righteousness in us? Hmm. No, there isn't. Righteousness is obtained only through one source, the righteousness of God. It's found in the man, the God, man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we receive that by faith. So people want to know, do their works actually contribute to their salvation? I think Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 is very clear, isn't it? For by grace are ye saved through faith. So God's grace, his goodness, his undeserved kindness and mercy saves us through faith. Is that our faith or his faith? Well, the scripture says, and that faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So there's nothing in there for us. And it's not of our works, lest any man should boast and claim that he's earned his path to heaven. Do my works contribute to my salvation? Absolutely not. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of or from yourselves. Then the gift of faith is given by God. It's the gift of God. It's not of works because people would therefore boast about it. So let us boast in the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us. Friends, one way of remembering the word grace and what it mean is, means is an acrostic, G-R-A-C-E. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. What a beautiful definition of grace. God's riches were paid to us, the grace of salvation and eternal life and the goodness of God. God's riches were uh, given to us at a cost, the cost of the death of the Son of God. Our second heading in our session, Righteousness by Faith, is entitled Our Justification. Just what is justification? Let's get to grips with this great subject. 
Question three, salvation consists of three parts, justification, sanctification, and glorification. We go to Romans 3, 24 and 25. Paul writes, being justified fully by his grace, sorry, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're justified freely by the grace of God, whom God have set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance or patience of God. I don't know if you had time to look up the word propitiation. It means uh, expiating or, um, you know, uh, basically um, making peace with an angry God. It pretty much means that there are two hostile parties, God and man. The Lord Jesus Christ came between them as a mediator, as an intercessor, and brought two hostile parties, God and man, together into an at-one-ment. Two hostile parties became one through the death of Jesus Christ, and that is the atonement. What does the word remission mean? Many people say it means forgiveness, yes. It also means pardon. So God has set forth, Jesus was set forth to be a propitiation or an atonement, um, and he was the one, and his righteousness would bring us pardon and forgive us of our sins that were past. So salvation consists of three parts, justification, sanctification, and glorification. What can we learn about justification? We are to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. All right, so friends, Justification removes all of the sins of the past. Question four, what must I do to receive justification or forgiveness for past sins? We go to 1 John 1 and verse 9. I think we know this scripture well. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just, meaning honest, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness, a few sins. No, it's very positive, isn't it? We are cleansed from all unrighteousness. What must I do to receive justification or forgiveness for past sins? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, often people are asking me pretty much what is the unpardonable sin and they don't want to commit it. Friends, the unpardonable sin can only be the sin that's never confessed. Because Jesus' blood is powerful and there's no filthy sin that his blood cannot overcome, that his blood cannot cleanse and forgive us from. So it's really important that we confess our sins to Jesus and also that we confess our sins to each other and keep our horizontal relationship um, in a godly way as well as our vertical. In fact, if our vertical relationship with God is right and it's connected, then our horizontal relationship will be right as well. You know, when I confess my sins, Jesus forgives me of all my sins of the past and cleanses me from all unrighteousness. Did you know this miracle takes place instantly? He at once counts me righteous. In justification, I'm delivered from the penalty of sin on the spot. So question five, what else is justification called? We go to John 3 and verse 3. Do you remember the story there? 
you remember who Jesus is talking to? One of the Pharisees came to see Jesus by night. The Pharisee's name was Nicodemus. He's also a member of the Sanhedrin. There was the minor Sanhedrin and the major Sanhedrin. The minor Sanhedrin was a council or assembly of the Pharisees, a Jewish sect, a religious group. And there was the group of 23 in the smaller group and 71 in the bigger group. So Nicodemus was a man of great standing and he didn't want his friends and colleagues to see him talking with this um, liberated, this radical during the day. So he went to see Jesus at night. And that's where we pick up the story in John 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Verily means of a truth. He's swearing an oath, saying, Here is the facts. Nicodemus. Unless you, a man, become born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Friends, you can imagine that was very challenging to Nicodemus. He was trying to visualize how he could again return through birth into his mother's womb. And he was taking Jesus' words literally instead of symbolically. What was Jesus actually referring to then? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Friends, Jesus was talking about the new birth or being born again. Because when justified, I have no past. I start all over again as a newborn babe. So friends, before we go to our next subject heading, I think we need to summarize pretty much what is justification? If only there was a place in the Bible where there was some story or some illustration whereby we could learn a little bit more, and there is. Let's go to Luke 18, 9 to 14. This is not in the study guide. I'd like to give you some extra material. Let's go to the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Do we know what publicans are? Mostly people think they're the people who run pubs, and that is the modern meaning, but the ancient meaning of publican was a tax collector in the Jews collected taxes on behalf of the Romans, and wow, weren't they hated. So let's go to Luke. We're going to Luke 18, 9 to 14. And Jesus spake this parable unto certain ones which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Luke is trying to be tactful. He's talking about the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus tells the story in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican, meaning a tax collector. They were hated. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Verse 13, Jesus continues. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes under heaven, but smote upon his breast or chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted.
So friends, the tax collector is said by Jesus to be the one who is justified. There we have the Pharisee on the left, the tax collector on the right, not daring to lift his head to heaven. But the word justified in this story means that God forgives you and I as he forgave the publican tax collector. And God amazingly sees us just as if I'd never sinned. He sees us justified just as if I'd never sinned. Well, that takes us to the top of page three in our study guide. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's have a look now at our sanctification. How can God get us ready for heaven? We're looking at what is sanctification. We're going to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 12. I'm going to share with you a more modern version. We're going to look at the voice version. Let's just pick it up in verse 3. We're looking for sanctification. Now, this is God's will for you. Set yourselves apart and live holy lives. Avoid polluting yourselves with sexual defilement. Verse 4. Learn how to take charge over your own body, maintaining purity and honor. Don't let the swells of lustful passion run your life as they do the outsiders who don't know God. We're in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 6. Don't violate or take advantage of a fellow believer in such matters. As we told you before, Paul writes, before and warned you, the Lord will settle the score with anyone who does these things. Verse 7. Here's why. God does not call us to live impure, adulterous, scandalous lives, but to seek holiness and purity. Verse 8. If you ignore this message, then you're not only rejecting us, Paul says, but you're rejecting God the one who has given his Holy Spirit to live in you. So friends, we're looking here for evidence of what sanctification is. Verse three, verse four, and verse seven very clearly clearly tell us what sanctification is. Verse three reminds us to set yourselves apart and to live holy lives, avoid polluting yourselves with sexual defilement. Let's carry on to verse nine. Paul writes, now there's no need for us to send you instructions on caring for your faith family because God himself has already taught you how to love outside yourselves, verse 10. And it's evident you learned that lesson well by the way you love all the people of Macedonia. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to love even more, verse 11. And make it your goal to lead a peaceful life Mind your own business and keep your hands busy in your work as we've instructed you. Verse 12, that way you will live peacefully with those on the outside and all your needs will be met without depending on others. Friends, that last verse is reminding us again of another definition of sanctification. If we live peaceably and peacefully with others, those on the outside, meaning those who aren't Christians, and not to sponge off them, but to provide for your own needs and don't be a bad witness to the God of heaven. We're looking at what is sanctification in that very large passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 12. Let's now look at verse 4 and 7 to get a definitive definition. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, meaning his body, in sanctification and honor. Verse 7, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto what? To holiness. So what is sanctification? 
It's very clearly that we need to be set apart and made holy. In the Old Testament, the Lord said, Be ye therefore holy as I am holy. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Verse 7, that was verse 4. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Friends, this passage says that sanctification is right living or holiness. And that best comes, and this is my own testimony, via Bible study and through the power of the Holy Spirit for God's word is as sharp as a two-edged sword and will cut into our hearts and minds and show us God's truth and where we are deviating from it. Question seven, how long does it take for a person to become fully sanctified? This is a very good question. What's the time frame? We're going to Ephesians 4 and verse 13. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How long does it take for a person to become fully sanctified, friends, till we all come in the unity of faith? Unity of faith is not uniformity where everyone has to believe the same thing. Unity of faith is the unity that comes from believing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and understanding and following and believing all the doctrines of Scripture. So we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God because Jesus is the hub and the center of all those truths until we grow up into a perfect man unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. We are to grow up as the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ and to grow up into maturity as Christians. So friends, what's our answer? How long does it take for a person to become sanctified? It could be in fact, the work of a lifetime. So we are to keep maturing till we become fully like Christ. So growth is another name for sanctification. To be born is a wonderful miracle, but it's not enough. We must also grow. Justification is birth. Sanctification is growth. It is a great tragedy when a baby is born, but never grows. It's also a great spiritual tragedy when a person experiences the new birth, justification, but never grows through the process which is sanctification. We're in question eight at the top of page four. We're asking now, how is sanctification actually accomplished in John 17 and verse 17? God's word says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Friends, where does God's word come from? We are to read his word. God's word sanctifies us. It purifies us. It tells us what's right. It tells us what's wrong. It reproves us. And his word, it doesn't say it contains the truth or it has some truth in there. It says, sanctify them through thy word, thy, through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Friends, we need to get the Bible out of the bookcase blow the dust off, put it next to your bedside table or on your study desk and spend time with God. I want to tell you, if you do that, your life will change 1000% for the better. Sanctification takes place as we obey the word of God in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16 and verse 22. 
And 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16 and verse 22 points out that people become holy and purified by obeying the truth. This holiness is actually sanctification. Meanwhile, in 1 John 3, 4, sin is the breaking or the trampling or the smashing of God's law. But in sanctification, God delivers me from the power of sin. In fact, sanctification is victorious living. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 2 Corinthians 2, 14. And it is accomplished in me by Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Question nine, do I obey the word or does Jesus do this process in me? This is really important. Do we do the work? Does he do the work? Paul has the answer in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Friends, God's law wasn't weak, but the law can't stop anyone from breaking it, just like the speed limits don't stop anyone from breaking the speed limit. But God's law was only weak in the sense that people, because they were born in sinful flesh, couldn't keep it. God then had to send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8, 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. We're answering the question, do I obey the word or does Jesus do it in me? In Romans 8, 3 and 4. So friends, the answer is God sending his own son that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Isn't that good news? So how does this happen? Jesus does it within me by his blessed Holy Spirit, John 14, 16, 17, 18 and 26. So justification counts me righteous, but sanctification actually makes me righteous. Both are miracles accomplished by Jesus for me and in me. Someone has once said that justification is my title to heaven, but sanctification is my fitness for heaven. And both come through in and over and by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Question number 10. What does God ultimately accomplish in me through sanctification? Let's go to Colossians 3, 8 to 10 first. But now ye also, Paul tells the church in Colossae in Greece, put off all these, all these sins, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Verse 9, lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. The old man is the old body, the old nature of sin. Verse 10, and to put on the new man, which is the new life in Christ, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, that's God, God did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus was to be the leader of the human race. He was to be the savior of mankind. We're asking and answering the question, what does God ultimately accomplish in me through sanctification? Friends, we are to be conformed to the image of his son. So just a few sessions ago in session number 19, we did look at the mark of the beast. Do you remember we studied together what was the image of the beast? So tonight I'm going to challenge you. We are told that we need to be conformed to 
the image of the Son of God. Are you being conformed to the image of the Son of God by reading his word, praying every day and sharing God's love with others? Or are you being conformed to the image of the beast? Friends, we just read the answer in God's word. We must be conformed to the image of his son and not his enemy as that enemy of God. The beast power is inspired by Satan. We were made in God's image, weren't we? In the beginning, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God's plan is to impart his righteousness to us until we are restored to that original image in which we were created, Acts 3, 20 and 21. It makes it clear that everything that Adam and Eve lost will be restored to the redeemed, including their holy characters. Praise the Lord. Sanctification accomplishes this character restoration. We're going to need that for the kingdom of heaven. Praise God for such a fabulous arrangement. Before we go on to our next heading, I want to give you some extra material. I need to ask the question, what is sanctification? Do you remember King David's son? His name was Solomon. David was not allowed to build the new temple because he was a man of blood, God told him. But God said, your son Solomon, who will not be a man of blood, he is the one who can build my sanctuary my temple. We find the story in 2 Chronicles 7, 12 and 14 to 16. We're looking at what is sanctification. This story will give us another idea of what sanctification is. It's a story from the Old Testament. The Lord God said to Solomon the following words. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. In other words, the new temple. Verse 14, I love this verse. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Friends, do you notice that sin goes with the destruction of the land? The destruction of land is sinful. Verse 15, now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attentive unto the prayer, the Lord God says, that is made in this place, the new sanctuary. Verse 16, for now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. So friends, Solomon standing in the new temple. God's giving him a revelation. Because the ancient temple was the Old Testament sanctuary that was carted around, the tent that was set up. And, you know, it was just a temporary portable tabernacle or sanctuary. Friends, Solomon built something like this. Absolutely grand where? The presence of God was to come. And God has just shared in those verses that we read there that sanctification was a process of God setting apart for a holy use. That's what the word sanctify means, to set apart for a holy use. And that is how God makes us holy. He sets us apart for a holy use. 
So if we ask the question, how is it best to set ourselves aside and apart for a holy use? then I would say one of the best ways to do it is through the waters of baptism. If you have not been baptized by immersion, this is the first step, I believe, in the sanctification process. And I would really encourage you to study God's word. And then when you know God's word and you're ready to sign up with Jesus Christ, that you step into the waters of baptism and be baptized by immersion as Jesus was. God bless you if you've made that decision in the past, or you've made that decision right now. Well, heading number four is salvation. We're looking at salvation past, present, and future. And question 11, how does the Bible empathize, emphasize that salvation involves past, present, and future? We go to 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, who delivered us? from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. So friends, how does the Bible emphasize that salvation involves past, present and future? Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver. Friends, let me share this with you. Here's how the Bible presents our salvation past, present, and future. Number one, justification is conversion. It delivers us from sin's penalty. Number two, sanctification is victorious living. It delivers us daily from sin's power. Number three, glorification means entering heaven, and it will deliver us from sin's presence. So, friends, this actually means that, firstly, God has saved us from sin's penalty through justification, where he counts as righteous and sees us just as if we'd never sinned. He saves us from sin's power, secondly, through sanctification, us being set aside and made holy day by day by reading God's word, being under the power and blessing of the Holy Spirit, sharing our faith with others and helping others. And number three, God will save us from sin's presence in the actual process of glorification. You know, Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God under salvation in Romans 1.16. The gospel includes God's power to save us past, present and future from sin's penalty, power and presence. Any gospel which does not include all of these is not the true gospel. And any salvation offered which ignores any of these is not salvation at all. So, friends, let's ask, what is glorification? Let's have a look at the words of Jesus in John 12, 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them, saying to his disciples, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So, friends, this glorification process must kind of mean some arising from literal or spiritual death. And so to glorify means that God removes all sin from around us and we are actually sinless. And so Jesus was, of course, glorified by the Father 
after his resurrection. We're looking at salvation, past, present, and future. Number 12, is Jesus the sole basis for my salvation in Acts 4.12? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Friends, Jesus is the only way to heaven. People want to say that many roads, all roads lead to Rome. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Friends, that is a very, very powerful testimony, isn't it? So is Jesus the sole basis for our salvation? There's salvation in nobody else. So whoever else you're thinking about as your savior, Jesus said there was only one way to heaven, and that was through himself. He is the door to the sheepfold. There's no other name. There's salvation nowhere else. The, he is the only one whose name given under heaven we are mine. Among men, we must be saved. It's salvation by Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is telling us it's Jesus plus nothing. Some people have asked, well, where do works fit in? Friends, works do not save us, but works are evidence that we are saved, that we're rooted, that we're rooted and grounded in faith, that our faith is that which produces fruit. If our faith and roots are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will produce fruit, and they are works of righteousness. But they are not things that we can do, but those things which God does through us. Question 13, what part do I play in the process of salvation? We go to 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 12. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. So friends, do you maybe have an education degree? You have some postgraduate degree. You have some status in the community, some ethnic status, some family status, some work status. What does scripture say that we actually need here? What do we need to be saved? Well, it's very, very simple, isn't it? And no one would be excluded. It says, for if there be first a what? That's right. A willing mind. It's accepted to what a man has, a man or woman has, and not according to those things that he's lacking. So what part do I play in salvation? Pretty much the only thing we need is a willing mind that's turned toward the kingdom of heaven that's open to the power of God via the Holy Spirit. It's accepted according to that a man hath and not according to that which he hath not. Friends, my part is to willingly follow Jesus all the way. I must crown him Lord and let him call signals in my life. Jesus must work the miracles, but I must be willing for him to do it. I want you to join me in heading number five, heading number five of seven at the top of page six in our study guide. We're looking now at Christian growth and necessity. Let's go into question 14. What, according to Isaiah, is the big problem of sin? We're going to get to the heart of the matter now, Isaiah 53 and verse six. Isaiah wrote, for we like sheep have gone astray. One sheep goes astray, all the other sheep follow we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the sin, iniquity, and guilt of us all. According to Isaiah, what's the big problem here? Friends, it's that we turned away from God. We've turned everyone to his own way. 
We've turned our back on God. We've rebelled. So God had to lay the sin of us on his son, Jesus Christ. And on Jesus Christ, he took the iniquity of us all. It's a very simple equation. We are either going to bear our sins ourselves into the lake of fire, or we have put our sins on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. I think that is pretty simple. You know, friends, sin consists of me wanting to have my own way, to be my own boss or Lord of my life. Isaiah says it was this sin of rebellion that killed the Lord Jesus Christ. So how hard is it for me sometimes to let Jesus rule in my life? I think it's pretty tough sometimes. Matthew 5, verse 30. Let's go to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, if your right hand offend thee or sin, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members or body parts should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Friends, how hard is it for me sometimes to let Jesus rule my life? Jesus said, if your right hand offend thee, cut it off. He didn't mean literally. He's speaking symbolically and metaphorically here. What is Jesus referring to? Giving up my own way and your way and letting Jesus lead is sometimes as hard as cutting off our hands. Question 16 is a good one. Can I lose salvation once I've received it? What do you think? Yes or no? Can we lose it? Some people believe that once saved, always saved. I believe once saved, always saved, so long as we stay saved and connected to Jesus. Let's go to John 15 and verse 2. Words of Jesus, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, meaning prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So the branches cut off and taken away, as you can see in the illustration here, are burned on the fire. And this is symbolic of hell fire. So friends, we must be the branches that bear fruit and are connected to Jesus. And we've spoken already about what the bearing the fruit is. The bearing the fruit is works of righteousness that come from the power of God in our lives. Can I lose salvation once I've received it? Apparently we can. Every branch of me that beareth not fruit, God the Father will prune off and take away. If I do not permit Jesus to impart sanctification to me or bear fruit, I will lose salvation. Fruit bearing or growth is essential for retaining salvation. Question six, uh, heading six of seven. Let's have a look at salvation and the book of life. 17, can my name be removed from the book of life once it has been written in there? We go to Revelation 22 and verse 19. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, John the Revelator wrote, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. I think that's a yes and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Friends, can my name be removed from the book of life once it's been written there? Revelation 22, 19 says yes. Apparently so, it is true. The names of all of God's faithful appear in the book of life. See Revelation 13, verse 8. 
but those whose names are in the book of life will be the only ones permitted to enter God's new kingdom. See Revelation 21, 27. The Bible teaches that a Christian who turns away from God and continually rebels and rejects him may have his name removed from the book of life and be lost even though he once was saved. Isn't that a tragedy? Question 18, can I be sure of salvation once I accept the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So friends, can you see anything significant there? Can you see a past, present and future? So we can be confident that Jesus Christ has begun a good work in us. That's the past. Then the text says he will perform it in us. That's the present. And it will go on until the day of Jesus Christ's second coming or his appearing. That is the future. So we are saved past, present and future. Can I be sure of salvation once I accept the Lord Jesus Christ? We can absolutely be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good thing, in you will perform it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. Just a little bit extra before we go on. If I was to ask you, do you know where the Lord Jesus Christ is now and why he hasn't come back yet? Hopefully after this seminar session series, you would know the answer. Where is Jesus Christ right now? And what's he doing? All right. Well, I hope that some of you have remembered that the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven sanctifying us and forgiving us from all our sins. And when that work of uh, intercession as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary is over, Revelation 15, 8 tells us that smoke fills the temple because the judgment has ended and Jesus Christ will return. The promise is that Jesus who converts me by a great miracle, give me continued victory by a continued miracle. We can be sure of his performance in us, which gives full confidence. Praise his wonderful name. Question 19. The Bible says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do I accomplish this? Friends, the fear and trembling means to work it out with sobriety and diligence. It means to be careful, to make sure you know what you're doing and you know what the Bible says. But how do we actually accomplish this to take the work of finding out if we're in a relationship with Jesus very seriously? Philippians 2 and verse 13 will give us the answer. For it is God which worketh in you, there's the good news, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Where's the power coming from? It's coming from God working in us. Some people don't know what it means to will and to do. Very simply, to will means that God will help us with the desire. Often we don't want to do the right thing. So I often pray and say, Lord, give me the desire to want to do the right thing. Give me the heart and mind of the Lord Jesus Christ that I want to obey your law. And secondly, what does it mean to do it? Then means to be able to do it and take action, to want to do the right thing, to want to keep his commandments, and then to have power to be able to do it. The Bible says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. How do I actually accomplish this? For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
Friends, the good news is that I work out my own salvation by turning my life over to Jesus, who makes me desire to do right and then miraculously works out right doing within me by his indwelling Holy Spirit. Let's go to heading number seven, our last heading in this session, our last heading for this seminar series, Jesus, our wonderful Savior. Question 20. What did the angels, the 24 elders and the four living creatures say when they reviewed Jesus' matchless plan of salvation in Revelation 5.12? What a grand text and scenario this is. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. What did the angels, the 24 elders and the four living creatures say when they reviewed Jesus' matchless plan of salvation? They said, worthy is the lamb that was slain. There's a lot of songs that have been written with those words in mind. Friends, before I read one of my favorite quotes from the book Desire of Ages, page 25, I just want to share with you that I actually have purchased this movie, Jesus of Nazareth. It's absolutely brilliant. I think one of the best movies on the life of Christ. It's a very um, comprehensive treatment of Jesus' life. And as I read this quote, I'm going to use some pictures from this movie. And I have the book. And so I have these pictures. The quote says, Jesus Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. Jesus was condemned for our sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death that was ours that we might receive the life that was his. With his stripes, we are healed. It was Satan's purpose to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But in Jesus Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. End of quote. No wonder the angels, elders, and living creatures said, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Friends, I want to remind you the good news today is that Jesus Christ is actually alive. Many churches have Jesus impaled on a crucifix, but Jesus is no longer hanging on the cross. Jesus Christ is alive. We do not worship a dead guy. So I want to remind you that there is cause for great rejoicing because Jesus is our wonderful Savior. So now what is Jesus saying to all of us? The fact he's alive, he's finishing the judgment, he's looking for people who are safe to take to heaven. What is Jesus saying to all of us in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30? He's saying, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest under your souls. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. Friends, when you sign up with Jesus, like um, bullocks that are yoked together, the burden is easy to carry because Jesus carries the weight for us. What is Jesus saying to all of us? He's saying, come unto me and I will give you rest. What sort of rest is he talking about there? It's very significant. Jesus promises us peace. He promises us release. And he promises us rest from the stress, the heartaches, the fears, burdens and guilt of life. And that takes us to our final question in the study guide. Will you accept that blessed peace and rest from his gracious hand? And I'm hoping that as you're watching this session, that your answer is in the positive. It will be the greatest decision you have ever made. Friends, we are going into our last quiz time. Let's go to our two response questions before we go into our five quiz questions. Number one, if you want to join God's Last Day Remnant Church and choose to be baptized, then please place a tick in box number one. Find a Sabbath-keeping church in your area where you can actually study God's word and be baptized by immersion and start keeping the seventh-day Sabbath on Saturday. Number two, if you're still deciding and want us to pray that God will guide and help you have the courage to make the right decision, I'm asking you to tick box number two or consider saying yes in your heart to the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our five quiz questions tonight are very simple. They're just answered true or false. Please, um, we will answer each question as we go. So lock in your answer immediately. Question number one, when a person is justified, meaning we are seen and counted by God just as if I'd never sinned, when a person is justified by acceptance of Jesus Christ as saviour, he is delivered from the penalty of all confessed sins. Is that true or false? Lock in your answer. And the answer is true. Number two. The process of growing up into Christ daily with power over sin is called sanctification. Remember, sanctification means to set apart, to make holy. Is that answer true or false? Lock it in. And the answer is true. Number three, my part in the salvation process is to willingly follow Jesus and his word, and he does all the rest. What is the answer there, please? Lock it in. And the answer is true. Number four, I can be confident that Jesus, who has begun a good work in me, will continue to help me grow up into his likeness until the day of his appearing. What's the answer? Lock it in. The answer is true. Number five, the master calls all nations, peoples, tongues, and languages into fellowship with him through baptism into his body, the church. Friends, the answer, of course, is true. God is not interested in having just one color of people in heaven, but the diversity of all his children and all the colors of the peoples of this world. Well, let us finish as we started. We asked this question, how are we saved by our faith or our works? I think you know the answer. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Number two, what is justification? An easy way to remember it is God sees us or counts us just as if I'd never sinned. 
So what does sanctification stand for? Sanctification is God making us holy through the power of his Holy Spirit every day as we study his word, pray, and share the gospel with others. Number four, what is glorification? Friends, it's when our bodies are sinless and we are taken to heaven. Number five, name the three parts of sin. It's deliverance from sin's penalty, deliverance from sin's power, and deliverance from sin's presence. What a great day that will be. So the final brick in the wall for session 24, we have been looking at righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And what do we learn tonight? We learn we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing. But of course, our obedience is the fruit of having that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be enough evidence to arrest us as Christians. So friends, there's been a review of the book of Revelation. I'm hoping that you'll take time to uh, be able to download that and work through that yourselves. And I would like to pray for you with you for one last time. Our gracious heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Holy Spirit, I want to thank you for this amazing Revelation Prophecy Seminar Series. I thank you for your grace and mercy that many times we were able to transmit the program when we had many amazing and terrible technical difficulties. I thank you for your grace and mercy that each day you're saving us and preparing us through sanctification for the kingdom of heaven. We look forward to our justification, our sanctification and our glorification. Bless all those who hear these words that they may continue to read your word, continue to study and have a daily connection that's very strong with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on the great day when Jesus comes, may we all be together as unbroken families to go back to heaven with him. I pray in Jesus' powerful name. Let all the people say, Amen. Friends, I want to say what a, a joy and a privilege it has been to open God's word to you. Uh, in the words of J.B. Phillips, the Bible translator, it's been like rewiring an old house and getting into connection with the living words of God, the amazing power of God. So I would just like to recommend if you finish this uh, seminar series that you go ahead and go back to the previous prophecy seminar. There are 32 sessions in this True Blue SDA website. And that is a very exhaustive and more advanced study on the book of Daniel. So that is the Prophecy Seminar Series. There's 32 sessions. Then this is the preliminary study. And that is the major study. So I'm asking you to go back and make that a priority. At this time, I want to thank you for joining us for this seminar series. I hope you've been blessed. And I want to say thank you and goodbye. And God bless you. And may one day we meet again. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Revelation with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word, that's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.